grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Over the next two episodes, we'll be talking adoption, loss and grief. Next week, Jane and I will discuss how the adoption experience, as well as many other factors, influence how we grieve losses that arise throughout our lives. This discussion will be based on Jane's experiences as a practitioner in the field of adoption and relevant research and theory. First though, a personal story. Today we're joined by Lois, who has courageously agreed to have a conversation with me about a loss we have recently shared, the death of our adoptive parents. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lois, and my deepest condolences for the loss of your beautiful mum last year and your dad in 2017. Hey, Andy, you too, Joe. I know that you loved your dad deeply as well. I did, yeah. It's yeah. been a rough trot for us. Yeah, on a bit of a roll. Yeah. <laughs> um, my parents were mid-40s when they adopted me, so they were more a grandparent age, and I never imagined, honestly, that they would make it to their 90s. Um, My mother in particular went on such a journey with me over my life and I even referenced it at her funeral, but um, I'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Lois, um, you and I have many areas where our adoption experiences are similar. Sure do. (laughs) Like you, I also had older adoptive parents. I think my mum was, or my dad was over 40 and my mum was probably 38, so... Um, so they're a little bit older yep. and we're adopted into families that already had existing biological children. Yep. Could you tell us a bit about your story of adoption? Yeah, well, first of all, we both are youngest children in our adoptive families, go us. Yeah. Um, so I've no memory of being told I was adopted. Um, Mum said she started using the word adoption around me from a really young age. Um, so she kind of frameworked it into this lovely story, which honestly it was years ahead of what was probably normal well what adoptive parents were kind of the information they were or weren't given yeah um she'd tell me that a lovely girl had given birth to me but for reasons we didn't understand she couldn't take care of me so I had to go to another family and then she'd talk about she'd give me this story about packing my dad and brothers into the car and driving up to Nambour She'd talk about the matron asking my brothers if they wanted to keep me. And my eldest brother, just a little boy, was kind of curious and said, you know, will will she cry a lot? (laughs) And um, the matron said, well, no more than you did when you were a little baby. And my other brother just was quiet and shy and just grinned and nodded his head a whole lot. And then on the way home, my mum always said it was really cold. It was winter. It was, you know, July. And they stopped into a, a cafe in Caboolture and the waitress saw this newborn baby and was like, oh, this is obviously a lovely new baby. What's the baby's name? And the adoption happened so quick. My parents and my brothers all just looked at each other like they had done a dash and grab out of the hospital. They hadn't discussed my name. And my mother just looked at the waitress and was like, uh, Lois. <laughs> so it was kind of, I mean, she did have the name in mind, but she hadn't discussed it with anyone. So anyway. Lois it was from then. Yeah, it was Lois. And everyone's like, okay, <laughs> you're the you're the female of the house. My brother, my brothers and my dad didn't object. So um, anyway, look, I um, had a good childhood. Adoption was kind of my thing. I quickly found out who the other adoptees were in the classes and it, church and groups that are involved in because you and I Joe were both born in an era where adoptions peaked in Queensland yeah 
So um, anyway, I found out there are other adoptees and most of the adults around me were fairly sensitive. My dad was a primary school teacher and when I was in grade two, the deputy, and he was one of those deputies that every kid in the school loved and adored, he told me that his daughter Anne was fostered. And so, you know, I quickly learnt the difference between fostered and adoption, particularly when Anne left the school a couple years later and it was because she wasn't part of that adopted family. And I, that deputy used to always look out for me and I remember being sick and he just, he just completely mothered not mother, fathered probably, sorry, Mr. Swift, if you're still out there. I suspect you're not. He was an elderly gentleman too, but so kind. So I, I always had a very, um, I was lucky in the sense that I had a very positive outlook on adoption and also by those around me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say I wasn't curious. I really, really wanted to look like somebody else. Um, I'm going to say that confidence didn't last through high school. I heard someone referring to someone else in another grade who was adopted as being a loser um, because they were adopted, so I told no one. And my friends in high school were not part of that same group of friends that were a big part of, for me growing up, Girls' Brigade Church community. It was it was easy to separate people that knew about that and people that didn't. And quite frankly, I just, you know, chucked it somewhere where I just didn't want to talk about adoption anymore I was kind of like no 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 so I didn't talk about it from the ages of 13 to 16 or so and then as I got more to my 16th birthday I became aware of girls at school that hadn't come back to year 11 or dropped out in year 11 because they were pregnant because this is still the 80s and so there's less of a debate about adoption and abortion. It's still still complicated times in Australia, I think. Yeah. So girls were having their babies, and which is good. There was the supporting parents benefit out there. There was but, still a stigma, wasn't there? Oh, completely. Yeah. I'm going to say an adopt, abortion was definitely not, a, not okay. And this isn't, you know, as adoptees, this isn't even an adoption-abortion debate. But anyway, I guess more so what I'm trying to say is by having um, having um, this scenario happen around me, it perhaps triggered this light bulb moment that dawned on me that my mother was, my biological mother was probably young and in high school. Mm-hmm. So I asked my mother, actually, do you think possibly she was young and in high school? And then at 16, my adoptive mother then gave me the actual letter that had come from the government when I was born, which confirmed she was young. And it was, you know, by now it was age appropriate that my mother gave me that letter. Um, It showed that Rhonda, that's my um, birth mother, was 15 through most of her pregnancy and 16 when she gave birth. And, you know, by the late 80s, there was so much talk in the newspaper that laws were going to change. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, so I was approaching 23 and the laws, as you know, because you you're an adult age then, right, Jay, you were 19? Yeah, I was 19 and 1991 when yeah. that changed, yeah. So the laws suddenly change and you're confronted with what are you going to do? Yeah. And having lots of adoptive friends, all of us were like, are you going to, you know, we're ringing each other, like, what are you going to do? And we all were totally going to look, you know, apply why wouldn't you you're young and you're curious so you still had adopted friends at that stage oh yeah yeah, yeah. Your, i never had one yeah ever. yeah i don't know i just always seemed to know who they were yeah. you know i probably had three or four yeah actually um my mum had been searching the regular family tree as in my adoptive mum and she really listened and understood when i said words to the effect of i love my family but your family tree really means nothing to me she didn't take offense she absolutely listened and I remember she told her her niece and they were both like oh that's kind of that's interesting and that actually makes sense so I actually didn't get any judgment for that Mm. um anyway I I decided um okay all right well I'm going to apply to meet my birth mother and I remember my parents sitting on their bed and I wandered into their bedroom one night and I said, um, I think I'm going to apply to meet my birth mother. Uh, you know what? And they thought it was a good idea. They, 
were they maybe they were a bit apprehensive maybe a bit more worried that she wouldn't want to meet me but they absolutely supported that that was you know that's probably a good thing to do yeah so I applied I got Rhonda's info her parents hadn't moved house um, it was so easy to get in contact um, and we entered into a reunion that was to last eight years pretty much my my 20s from the ages of 23 to 31 um, when I was 31 she died quite young from cancer so those eight years were quite, were quite crucial in giving me an opportunity. I mean, I didn't recognise it at the time, but I was able to get information, create good and bad, good and probably sad memories as well. But more than anything, I got a really good dose of mirroring during that time. Yeah. And that's really been crucial to how I've looked back on this years later. I mean, on a really simple level, we looked alike, we laughed alike, both of us couldn't cook, both of us maxed out our credit cards. We had, <laughs> like, just, I don't know. In many ways, as I said, it was a bit superficial. That's okay. Um, she was so much fun because she was young, and I loved that out in public people would think, you know, would naturally assume we were related because we looked so much alike. I mean, so there I am, I'm 23, and she's 39. Yeah. A 39-year-old birth mother, that blows my mind yeah. that we were both so young to be going through this with no, you know, government support or suggestions other than the No More Secrets booklet from the Queensland government. Good luck with that. Okay, so this is the thing. I could see she disguised trauma and pain mm -hmm. from, and, you know, behind this really sunny disposition there were certain things she wouldn't discuss with me, but she would kind of dismiss it in such a fun way. You couldn't really, you just accept it. Um, when I say she would dismiss it, I could tell pretty early on that she had issues with alcohol, functioning alcoholic for sure, mm. but still, you know, enough to go, oh, that's interesting. I mean, I grew up in a teetotaling family and all of a sudden I've got a birth mother that drinks bottle of wine every night, like yeah. every night, sometimes more. Any time I spent with her, always involved alcohol. Yeah. And I think it might have just been, um, well, there's a lot of things, which I'll probably get into in a bit in a little bit. But anyway, um, she had a lot that she was trying to hide from me. She didn't want me to have to, and you know, in an acceptable way. When I say hide, I mean she had childhood secrets that she just didn't want to traumatise me with. So... Uh, meanwhile, my adoptive mother was older than Rhonda's mother. So, in other words, my adoptive mother was older than my biological grandmother. Wow. So, for my mother, it was pretty simple to not see Rhonda as a competitor. And my mum just mothered Rhonda as well. I mean, some of the things that make me laugh now and seem so surreal, like Rhonda staying over it the family home and sleeping in my bed while I'm on the floor in a sleeping bag having a slumber party and mum coming in on a Sunday morning with freshly squeezed orange juice and asking us if we would please like to come to church with her and Rhonda and I were both like yeah okay that'll make mum happy let's do it you know we were more like sisters at that point but we're yeah. like we're happy to go to church with her and then going to church and having people staring and wondering if my adoptive mother had a secret daughter they didn't know about. Yeah. So it was the Sunday that my mother created scandal at church. <laughs> and it's so it's so priceless to look back at. I mean, we all laughed. It wasn't, you know, Rhonda yeah. loved it. My mum thought it was fun too. It was just, yeah, I, I, I look back now and I can see Rhonda was probably, I was embarrassed that my, my mother was so much older. But Rhonda... Rhonda, I think, really probably appreciated the fact that I grew up in such a wholesome, <laughs> old-fashioned, Christian kind of home. Yeah. I think that really made her feel like, well, thank goodness, you know, Lois is somewhere safe. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just, um, I'm just thinking the fact that you only had eight years with Rhonda. Mm -hmm how lucky it was that you searched at that time because if you'd waited which like many people oh. wait you could have missed out on that opportunity to meet her i just can't even imagine yeah that yeah if i had waited 
I, I think I would have had so many regrets yeah. and I also wouldn't have the context that I have now. I mean, it's possible if I'd waited, I still would have found out about the horrors of her childhood. Yeah. But instead I can put in context this beautiful, lively soul that, like, I'm really proud to be from Rhonda. Take outside, I mean, take away all the aspects of Rhonda that made her life difficult and she was such a kind, funny... I see the things about myself I like in Rhonda. Yeah. I mean, I love in Rhonda. And I see things as well like, okay, that's a lesson, Lois. You know, got to work on those active listening skills. <laughs> <laughs> Rhonda and I found it... When we get talking on the phone, you know, it was a competition to like... Yeah. It was constant interruption, you know. Yeah. like and, and I grew up in a really introverted household and it was hard at times growing up. I knew my family loved me, but we'd sit there on a Sunday having Sunday lunch and my parents and my brothers would, like, look at each other like, when's someone going to turn off Lois's off button? Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> you know, like, she can pack so many words into a sentence, can't she? <laughs> no, I felt loved, but I did feel that pressure of, you know, like the, an extrovert in an int- a severely yeah. introverted family. Yeah. Then, of course, I, you know, when I did get to know my biological family, Rhonda was the eldest of six siblings and her family was so, like, everybody talking over everybody else. And I'm like, wow, I really need some introverted time. Yeah. Like, that that was an insight into the other side of the of coin. It. Yeah. And, yeah. I, um, yeah. I really understand what you were saying because my family, um, you know, I had – three biological siblings or my sorry my parents had three biological children before I came along so um, I always felt like they were a fabric and that I could you know ride along on the fabric but I couldn't penetrate it because it, yeah. there was just things they seemed to get about each other joke I don't even really know how to describe it but there was something about them that I felt outside of and it wasn't something they put on me it was just something I felt so yes, that's a good way of describing it yeah so, Lois, um, your mum was well-known and deeply admired by us here at Jigsaw because of her unconditional love and support of you and her willingness and desire to understand adoption issues. How did your relationship with your adoptive parents evolve and change during and after your reunion with your um, with Rhonda? Okay, I've got to say that I can't say I'm any different to any teenager in that I didn't like my parents very much yeah. when I was a teenager. Um, they were in their early 60s when I graduated high school. Yeah. And I was in my teens and just hit my 20s when I had my reunion. So I was only growing out of that phase where you don't want to be around your parents or listen to anything they have to say. Um, the reunion happened probably at a crucial point anyway in terms of me just becoming an adult. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it's interesting. So suddenly as I'm going through this deeply um emotional process of meeting my birth mother I suddenly found myself really having to lean on my parents Mm. um and really I probably drew on their reserves a little bit because I could be quite emotional about you know I'd be happy or I'd be sad or I'd be angry or just you know like whenever you go through reunion you're thinking and overthinking every single little thing that happens and, you know, in hindsight, maybe a counsellor in these days, probably someone would say, speak to a counsellor or go get some peer support. But anyway, it doesn't really matter because I had these parents that were incredible. My mum was a ferocious reader and just demolished the same adoption materials that I did. Um, at, you know, it goes to show too, at 90-something, she came to the national anniversary apology event yeah. because she recognised girls like Rhonda had been totally let down by the government, by doctors, by society. Um, and actually, a, an interesting story that kind of shows the kind of person she was, um, a few years before I was born, my mum was quite sick for a while. It's the days when hysterectomies left you sort of incapacitated for months at a time. And my mum, marrying a bit later, she married at probably 37, 38, had two toddler sons she was trying to raise. So she sees in the church notices a family from Toowoomba trying to relocate their daughter 
for a few months down to Brisbane and mum knew instinctively what that, that meant. So she put, um, uh, she allowed this lovely, well, she, I forget the girl's name, um, but the girl came and stayed with um, my parents for the duration of her pregnancy. Um, mum had no shame or worry what the neighbours would think. Um, you know, she let her stay with them. Um, it's probably already a pretty gutsy move. Mm. Um, at, anyway, we, uh, Christmas Day comes along, or maybe just before Christmas, and her mother-in-law is, you know, positively scandalised that um, that this girl is in the house. And the, my mum's mother-in-law states that, you know, she really doesn't think it's appropriate and she won't come to Christmas Day unless the girl is sent packing, at which point my mother, you know, wishes her mother-in-law a Merry Christmas and I'll see you in the new year. So um, anyway, boom. <laughs> Talk about uninviting the mother-in-law to Christmas lunch. That's my mother. Um, I, I really feel like my mother was ahead of her time. I had to like constantly remind myself as the decades went by that this woman who I always thought was a bit old-fashioned was in fact really on top of social justice and fairness and righting wrongs. Um, you know, I was 43 when I found out rectus- retrospectively that my birth mother had in fact died with the most horrifying secrets in of her childhood. Um, I found out in so much detail that Rhonda had suffered you know, a lot of sexual abuse in the family home. And it was my mother, adoptive mother, that, you know, hugged me and helped me process things initially. And it wasn't easy. You know, I presented as an adult the weekend after I found this information completely, completely and utterly falling apart. Um, We both cried and cried and cried. Probably... Well, a lot of reasons, but also the realisation from both of us that Rhonda had put on such a mask and hadn't wanted to traumatise me when she was alive and also wanted to probably do that for my mother's sake as well. Mm. Um, Rhonda only ever, ever said such lovely things to my mother, you know, that clearly really, really looked up to my mother. And, you know, when you can look back and know that someone held a secret and why they held that secret. Sometimes a secret can come, can come out of a place of love. And I don't think I, I truly understood that message. Like nothing is as simple as it seems. Anyway, I mean, long term, I ended up seeking counselling and my mum was so relieved and encouraged that and was always like, so what did you learn this week, Lois? You know, and, and we both kept exploring, you know, literature and watching documentaries and then the apologies came along and, you know, we took those apologies to mean, like, I don't feel sorry that I was adopted. There's no shame in that. My mum shouldn't have to apologise for being a great adoptive mum, but we do feel like... Rhonda needs an apology from the government for that era for the way she wasn't um not only not believe I mean there's certain things I know where Rhonda was severely let down by police that did know what had happened in the family home and there's quite a few stories about um police um doctors and even a a judge in uh well I won't say what town but let's say North Queensland, that did, was also told what had happened and nothing was done about it. So it was wonderful that my mum and I could go on this journey together and take that apology on Rhonda's behalf. Yeah, yeah. It's like an honouring of her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what the apology means to me. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, So... Unlike me, my adoptive mother is still alive, and as is my um, biological mother. What has been the impact of losing um, both your birth mother and your mother? Yeah, okay. So um, losing Rhonda at such a young age made me realise life doesn't always turn out as you expect. I never expected my adoptive mother to outlive Rhonda. Probably in even one of those moments in my 20s, I remember being quite annoyed 
when I did the maths and thought, oh, that's not fair. Rhonda's going to know me my whole life. You know, and I always thought my poor old mother, because she was so much older than most people's mothers, I always kind of felt like, oh, mum won't have much longer to live. Mm. So, um, so I kind of, I was kind of, I think, in shock. R- Rhonda, when she did die, died quite quickly. I mean, it was a cancer journey that only lasted um, 18 months. So at the time, I just kind of was in shock and I just ended up almost shutting down completely on the topic of adoption. Um, on the other side, when it, when it regards to my adopted mother, I always sort of said I was put on this earth to amuse my mother. But suddenly I became aware that my mother was also here to take me on my adoption journey. Um, and mum was incredible. We never stopped talking about how lucky we were to have each other. Um, my mother was such good emo- emotional support for me. And, you know, I know... I mean, looking back on her passing, I know how I'm really glad I invested the years that I did with my mother. Um, you know, dragging her to cafes and museums around the city every weekend. Um, I don't know. I appreciate I have Rhonda's spirit, but I have mum's resilience as mm. well. Um I don't know. I'm, I'm grateful. My mother died in my 50th year. I mean, she made my 50th birthday. That, I just, again, I can't stop saying it. As a little kid that, you know, suddenly has a 50-year-old when you're in grade one as a mother and then a, you know, a parent in their 60s in high school, you just never think you're going to be 50 and have your mother here on this earth to support you. Yeah. Um, I just didn't imagine in a million years that, um, you know, that would be the case. I did have a hard time when she died for a bit, about six months of pretty intense grief. Um, but talking about it has helped. Um, and really, I guess there was so little that was left unsaid between my mother and I. And I mean, my brothers, my one particular brother, and I always joke about who was the favourite. And we're probably favourites in different ways, but it was so powerful and important to me that I could be there when my adoptive mother passed away yeah that's just yeah I I, there's it made me not fear death and I don't know my mother had such a strong Christian faith that she turned death into a really positive thing you know like Mm. it was just and for a girl that had said to her that I wasn't so much interested in her family tree you know suddenly we were there overlooking south brisbane and my mother grew up opposite the gabba and it was kind of like i don't know it was so fitting that i could be there in an area of brisbane that was so important to her growing up and feel connected to that you know under this full moon and the gabba's all lit up and down there somewhere is the remnants of mum's childhood home. Yeah. And that's the night that she goes out from this world. Yeah. So, yeah, that's convoluted. I hope that was okay. That was great. <laughs> um, and I could really identify with what you said because with my adoptive father, he um, passed away in January and, and he was a person in my life who I felt completely safe with um, and somebody who really understood me and took the time to try and understand adoption issues and how adoption had impacted me. And there was nothing left said unsaid between he and I when he passed. Like he, he'd really taken the time to understand how I'd been impacted, and um, and we were with him at the end too. And you know, we made sure between my brother and sister and I that there was someone touching him the whole time. And to be there in those last moments, as traumatic as it was, I'm incredibly grateful that we got to do that, and and that there was nothing left unsaid between us. Um, well, that's beautiful, Joe. Thank you. I, thank you. Yeah. Um, trying not to (laughs) go down that road Um, yeah yeah, so he was he and my mother I have to say they were never threatened by what I think is a natural curiosity and desire to search from where I came from Um, and I'd always had because of their age a terrible fear of losing my adoptive parents and um, so much so that I wouldn't stay anywhere as a child unless my um, adoptive brother was with me because he was only seven years older and um, if he was with me, I knew they'd come back. So um, yeah. I was probably 13 before I stayed anywhere without them, and that was at my sister's house in Brisbane. 
Um, and uh, my dad, he was always really fit and healthy. Um, but I noticed for the first time when I was about 21 and after my eldest brother had taken his own life, the dad began to age faster. Yep. And it was then that I started to really fear his death and it brought up, I guess, some abandonment issues. Um, And he started to develop a number of health concerns, any one of which could have taken his life. And that fear grew in me. And I I can remember he developed a a tumour in his pancreas. Yeah. And at the time, we didn't know whether it was cancerous or not. And um, and I can remember just, like, falling down on the ground and my husband coming out. I'm like, go away. <laughs> Don't touch me. I just I couldn't, yeah. I just couldn't, you know. And so it was, like, 24 hours before I could even mention it again. So it was quite overwhelming at some times. Um, is that anticipation of an adoptive parent's death? something that you can relate to oh it never stopped yeah I think even in primary school I was so scared my parents would not only just actually not only just death but I remember I remember my um parents having a fight as couples are want to do and it was all over the fact that no one helped with the dishes and my mum having what was probably her only really overly blown dramatic moment when I was growing up where she packed her bags and said she was going to leave. Yeah. And um, I'm sure lots of people <laughs> can identify with that. But, you know, I was, I took that literally and I um, went into her room and I collapsed and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. It's one of the most probably... Um, it's very, it's a very probably traumatic memory and I didn't have many of those growing up. But, you know, my mum, I think she must have instantly recognised that I had this absolute fear of abandonment and she kind of stopped. She she collapsed into tears as well. I must have and, broken her heart. Yeah. yeah. Unpacked everything, yeah. hugged me and said she'd never leave me, you know, and she just said she was just feeling sad. Yeah. Because no one would do the dishes. You know, it's like, it's like, okay. And I think I probably went out in tears. And I was always a bit of a boss in the house and told my dad and yeah. brothers they had to stop, start yeah. doing the dishes and stop hurting mum's feelings. Yeah. But um, in regards to mum's health, she had a triple, double or triple bypass just before I met Rhonda when I was about 21 or 22. I remember my eldest brother told me I had to prepare myself that mum may not make it I mean it's only okay so that's 30 years ago or so but back then bypasses were a lot more serious than they are today it was a little bit more fraught with danger um and then the year um um yeah and then the year Rhonda died mum also spent a few weeks in hospital right in the weeks before she died um she was quite sick um, and that was another time when I thought, wow, you know, in, in theory, I could have lost mum and Rhonda like weeks apart from each other. Um, but mum battled through like she always did, had good doctors, good operations, good outcomes. Um, yeah, so I think as an adoptee, I had a real fear of being abandoned my whole life. And I'd often say out loud to family, I'm just warning you now, I'm not going to cope when mum dies. And yet by the time she died, we had gone through so much. And they get into their mid-90s and all you can do is just applaud them and go, well done, you know. We were planning, you know, her 95th, her 96th, her 97th. I said, right, mum, you know, like you're not allowed to make it, you're not allowed to not make it to 100 and I hope I'm here to help you celebrate because clearly you're not going anywhere. Um but, you know, after all the things we'd gone through over the years, it's okay. Like, I, when she passed away, I was at a point in my life where I think I honestly was prepared. I was prepared for it. But, boy, that only took, <laughs> that only took oh, dear, maybe 47 years for me to be ready for my mum to be yeah. able to move on. Um, I miss having her to talk to. That's all right, you know, like she, I kind of owe it to her to be able to get on with it. And I remember also thinking, oh, Lois, there is no way you will ever be able to speak at your mother's funeral. 
But, you know, my father had only died 18 months before. And in a strange way, mum and I said it was one of, like, we had such a... My mother was a social creature. <laughs> For an introvert, she actually probably... Eh, she's probably, probably more extroverted than she realised. But we had such a great day connecting with extended family and friends and... And, you know, we it, we had great music, great food, great laughter. And I'd given a speech at my dad's funeral and mum really loved it. And she said, I hope you give me a good speech like that. And what I wanted to say to her is, oh, mum, there is no way I'll be able to speak at your funeral. Uh, I didn't say that to her. So then mum, of course, passes away. And then suddenly I had in me a strength I never knew I had. And the first thing I stood when I... When I Sorry, the first thing I said when I stood up at her funeral was my mother would be so disappointed in me if I didn't stand up and tell a few jokes and tell a few good stories about her and my relationship. And I surprised myself I did it. You know, I was so, like, so relieved I did. And I, I honestly would say even months before, I would think that was the one speech in life I would be incapable of doing. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, I was good right until the very end. It was a bit hard at the end. Um, that's okay, but I got there. And um, more than anything, I was like, oh, I could just feel mum's. My mum was like all mums. They're proud of their kids. Mm. And I just felt like I really felt mum's presence and like, yeah, Lois, good on you. Thanks for saying those things. Yeah. Even the things you probably said that embarrassed me. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and that, yeah, was important. Yeah. Um, Lois, my eldest brother was 36 when he took his life and I was 21 at the time. Yeah. Um, my eldest sister is 18 years older than me and my closest brother, which is the only one that I remember growing up with, was seven years older. I had some negative experiences with extended family when he died and felt in some ways that I was excluded from them after the loss. Uh, one experience had a particularly lingering impact on me. Um, so my brother hung himself at his home in central Queensland mm. while he was working for the mines and the mining company said they would pay for four of us to go up there and help pack up his family and bring them and his body home yeah. um, back to Brisbane. So my sister had four young children, including um, one-year-old twins at the time. I think they were one. Uh, so it was agreed that my parents, my brother and I would be the ones to go up. Uh, when we returned, a family member who'd already implied to me when I was a teen that I should be grateful to my parents for even having me, um, said to my sister in front of me that it should have been her who went and not me. And that would have left me, age 21, at home alone after losing my brother to suicide, which I felt was a really cruel thing to say at the time. Um, That's so much trauma, Joe. It, it was I mean, so much trauma that you went through and so yeah. much trauma. And everyone deals with grief and trauma in a different way, but there's an awful lot of people putting their issues on yeah, you. And it's hard as an adoptee to reconcile yeah. why, why they're doing that. That's exactly it. And and at the time, all I was interpreting it to mean, whether it was how it was meant or not, was that I was not as close a family member to my brother as what my sister was or yeah. other family members. So that's so it brought up a lot of adoption issues yeah. for me at the time, which was not helpful. Um, and even though I knew my parents and my siblings didn't feel that way I had to say at the time it broke my heart it was um it's something that's lingered yeah. on with me over the years and in the years leading up to my father's passing like we knew it was coming like um he had some issues with his heart and we in the end he was 91 when he passed um but we knew it was coming so based on those experiences I I had a lot of anxiety coming up to his passing and I thought at first it was just about abandonment feeling of abandonment but I realise now that also maybe some of it was that it might again bring up issues where I feel separated off because I think for yeah. me one of the biggest issues was I always wondered whether people thought I was a part of the same, as much a part of the family as what I felt part of yeah. them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and when those things come up, it makes me realise actually some of them don't think that I was way. close. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, what surprised me though when dad passed was that 
those issues didn't come up and I don't know whether it was because some of those relatives have now passed um, or Maybe because... old generations. And... Yeah, it might be. And, and also because my father was very private about how he wanted to be farewelled so we didn't have a funeral so there wasn't a lot of extended family there. It was um, just very pe- people who were very close to us who were there. Um, so I guess no one said anything that triggered me. And well, I was, that's a good thing. It is a good like, thing, yeah. And it allowed me to just be a daughter who was grieving the loss of her father and yearning for more time with him. Um, which is essentially how we probably all connect with others on this earth, right? It's it's just hard to know as an adoptee if what you're feeling is authentic yeah. to what someone else who's not feeling. But, yeah, I no, I... Th- I think grief is grief. Yeah. I don't know when you... Because, I mean, I, I do recognise that adoptees, non-adoptees, we all have people in our lives that we absolutely that we absolutely love that, you know, a biological connection sometimes means something, but sometimes it doesn't as well. Yeah, Joe, I kind of felt a little overwhelmed when, you know, when I think about the trauma you went through when your brother... Um, committed suicide and I just as adoptees we were treading such unknown ground and you throw in this kind of trauma did you consider getting counseling or or did you get any kind of counseling like what support did you have when your brother passed away um so the man who's now my husband he and I had only just got back together after breaking up for a year around the time that my brother passed away and um and I don't think anybody in the world knows that at the time um I did like so I was just a poor uni student at the time so um it was really expensive to go and seek help back then there was certainly no government support for that kind of thing um and I reached out to a psychiatrist um in Brisbane city and I went to her and she had absolutely no understanding of adoption um, issues at all. And oh, gosh. Yeah, and I kind of felt at the time that um, the kind of people, oh, I just kind of felt like I wasn't the kind of person she would normally see and I almost felt like I was whinging about something that wasn't worth whinging about. And so I only went and saw it once because it was just, and it put me off of going to see anybody for a really long time. So, um and I've had other experiences sort of post then where I've gone to see people who didn't really understand adoption issues either. And I mean, it's more harmful than good if you go and see someone, a practitioner who doesn't know anything about adoption. So, um, so it was only really when I started seeing practitioners who do know, have been educated about adoption issues and support groups and and things like that, that people started to understand what I was talking about. Yeah. Okay. So right on the money there, when I found out the traumas of my birth mother, what she'd gone through, I saw, I got sent to a um, psychologist that had no clue and gave me a brochure about being happy and um, <laughs> and was kind of quite fascinated by, yeah, I don't know. It's too, it's, it's too horrendous to actually speak about, only because I've dealt with it because I did find the right person and it's actually one of the counsellors here at Jigsaw so I can't stress enough to anybody that might be going through an adoption or like a related issue in this field to really seek out someone that understands Mm. I wouldn't be where I am today without the right sort of counselling that got me through this. Yeah, and don't let it put you off if you come across someone who doesn't understand. Go find another one. Go find someone else. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important. Which is what, I mean, when I saw this really poor psychologist, I I had a friend that's a social worker and straight away was like, oh, Lois, please just keep looking, you know. And I got on the internet and I looked up, post-adoption services and children's services in Queensland. That led me to the Benevolent Society and to Jigsaw. There's such good help out there. Um, Don't try and do this yourself. It's, I mean, there there isn't enough written that you you won't be able to necessarily just jump on the internet and find all your answers. You've got to process it face-to-face or, you know, over Skype or whatnot. We're living in COVID times. It's good. But you need to have someone that can look you in the eye and understand what you're going through. I'm really sorry you went through all that, Joe. That's just horrendous. And I feel the same yeah. for you, Lois. Um, and I think one of the things that 
it can be very empowering when you take control of um, this situation. You do seek help and you go and like, you know, I've, I've written stories about it. I've, um, I've searched and reunited with people. I've seen different counsellors. I've gone to support groups. It's no one-stop shop. Like it's an ongoing thing that I will continue to, yeah. you know, do those things and find my own voice and and taking control of your own healing is very empowering and very healing in itself I think yeah yeah I think um I spoke at my father's funeral as well and um for me it was just a matter of he was someone who was always very quiet and didn't like the limelight and I thought you're having the limelight today and it was a long eulogy and I didn't even <laughs> yeah. care I thought you can fall asleep if Good you want job. <laughs> I'm saying everything I want to say yeah. so get stuff <laughs> yeah was well, it funny my adoptive father I, I I mentioned him so rarely and I don't mean not to my adoptive dad was like a big teddy bear yeah at his funeral I called him Humphrey B. Bear you know he was the <laughs> strong silent type yeah um he listened a lot. He was a really, really good listener. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I identify with that. When it came to adoption, I, I just, I never questioned my dad's l- love for me. Again, he would just, he was a, he really was a protector mm. that didn't have to say words, you know, like, um. so, yeah, whereas my mother was much more verbal yeah, whilst not necessarily being, as I said, overly extroverted, but extroverted amongst people that she knew and friends and whatnot. Yeah, and I, um, I think for me, I also um, appreciate when I recognise that my biological mother, Rhonda, didn't have that same safety that I had. Yeah. Um, so when I think about her father as this horrendous human being and then I think about and funny enough Rhonda's dad and my dad are the same age um and my dad didn't have an easy life either he had a mother that wasn't particularly nurturing and um he went on to be a teacher in an era where things like the cuts and the cane and slapping kids with rulers was quite common, but that was not my dad. He just did not do that at all in that era, didn't believe in it at all. And I don't remember my father ever raising a hand on me growing up. He couldn't have been a safer, kinder human being. If yeah. my dad was frustrated or, or annoyed at me, or I'm going to say probably more so, if I did something that made my mother angry she would tell my father to deal with it and he'd wait until mum had disappeared and then he'd just tap me lightly on the arm and kind of giggle and be like don't do that again <laughs> like he just he didn't have it in him to do anything other yeah. than I think he saw me as this um kind of tiny little thing that just needed to be protected and you know it's not to say that my mum didn't have reason to get she was being a normal person you know like it's okay to be mad at your child and kind of send them to their room or whatnot but my dad was like oh that was all a bit too confronting for him and it's interesting because even in my dad's later years um as he was a music teacher he used to volunteer and play for palliative care groups and for limited hours childcare groups. And I remember taking dad into hospital and having um, a mum and a, and a son who was about eight or nine walk past. And I heard this boy turn to his mother and say, oh, that's Mr. Music, you know. So, so as Miss, this persona my father had as Mr. Music was this quiet, smiling old fellow that sat at the piano but he wouldn't, he was so good with little kids and he he didn't have to say anything. That's why I kind of draw that example of being a lot like Humphrey B. Bear. Yeah. All the qualities that make Humphrey such a great thing for children. You know, that, that caring, nurturing, fun yeah. kind of figure. He sounds beautiful. Um, I put myself, I don't know about you, Joe, jo, I put myself fully in charge of my parents' funerals. And I think as adoptees, we're probably prone to wanting to make sure, as you said, the send-off they deserve, not being scared, as you said, to 
Go as long as you like on the eulogy. Why not? Who's going to stop you? Um, you know, there's something that meant a lot to me at my mother's funeral. Um, I looked over and saw a row of my biological... When I say my bio- biological relatives, I mean the ones that have been with me through this journey, like mm. my my biological aunt, cousin, their partners. Um, and it was so wonderful to see them sitting at that funeral as my little kind of cheer squad. Um, and also to know how pleased my mother would be. And that's the word my mother would choose. I'm pleased that they attended Lois. You know, yeah. it's like, um, yeah, it was just so beautiful. And then afterwards... Just um, people at that church service being moved about the adoption aspect of my eulogy, which I didn't shy away from. Mm. I said my mother was equally a good mother as she was adoptive mother. Mm. And uh, just seeing extended family, friends or people I didn't even know talking to some of my biological relatives as well. It was really quite powerful to see how it can work and it can be supportive and it's not a competition like it's I don't I guess the bigger picture for me is knowing that I could love my mother my father my birth mother I could love them all equally Mm. and just as equally I can be frustrated with people on all sides as well yeah you know and yeah um you know last year on the lead up to mother's day Mum had been gone a couple of months and I was still deep in grief. I was feeling sad. I was feeling overwhelmed. And I woke up on Mother's Day with an absolute feeling of getting a shout out from heaven and Mum and Rhonda just going, oh, Lois, for crying out loud, just get on with it. We're fine. You can do this. Yeah. And um, it did help, you know. It's sometimes... I don't know. Look, am I religious? Yeah, I guess I am religious. I'm really grateful for um, the foundations probably that that mum gave me of just feeling like there's a purpose and that her and Rhonda are both up there looking out for me. Um, I have got with me, Jo, mm-hmm. um, some correspondence when, when I first met my birth mother, it was in that era in the 90s where there was no email or whatever. <laughs> Everything was done. Like, I wrote letters to Rhonda for six months before I met her. Yeah. She was living in Melbourne at the time. But equally, my mum and Rhonda, they wrote letters to each other before they met yes. as well. So I'm just going to read you a couple of excerpts, not the whole thing, because my mother wrote a mean letter. It's six pages long. So I'll just read you a couple <laughs> of lines. And, it, and here we go. Just bear with me for a minute. Um, a real letter. I don't even remember the oh, last time I saw one. You can witness it, Joe, right? That Six is a real long. letter. Beautiful handwriting. Nice yeah. penmanship. I'm glad you're reading it. It's tiny. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to see it, I don't think. Yeah. This is the 3rd of November, 1991. Wow. And she's... um. And these letters came to me. Basically, so I just have to say to you, that's probably when I met my mother as well right around then so we must have been in the throes of all of this at exactly the same time the legislation i remember kicked in in the winter yeah it was may or june yeah and the department were overwhelmed they would have been by everybody just writing and asking for information yeah Yeah. i wish i'd known you at the time yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's all right we know each other now (laughs) (laughs) um so mum writes dear Rhonda, it's lovely to know that lois has had contact with you We rejoice with her that she is discovering who she is, where she came from, and especially from the photos, recognition of being like someone else. Um, She goes on to talk about, you know, in detail, all the fun stuff about picking me up from the hospital, and it's quite funny along the way, some of her comments. Um, Towards the end, she goes on to say, let me find it, page six. Um, this was what I thought was really powerful, something that my mother always emphasised to me. She writes, I often thought of you giving up Lois and prayed that God would help you to accept the situation that you were going through. And mum sometimes told me that verbally as well, that when she first had me, well, sorry, when she first brought me home and I was a, you know, a tiny little baby that sometimes she would cry mm. just knowing that somewhere out there, 
was a teenage girl that had had to give up her baby. Yeah. And that really, you know, that she really, really see it from that perspective. Her. Yeah. And then she says, um, we felt it was Lois's right to know her background. We are so happy that you will be willing that you are willing to know her. We also look forward to the day when we can hug you and express to you our thanks for Lois. And then I've got this card that Rhonda wrote back to my mother in relation to that witnessing it job. Oh, that's a real card with real, real writing. Card. It says, thank you. Words <laughs> can say so little when someone's done so much. Wow. And um, Rhonda writes back, thank you for the most beautiful letter I have ever received. I did shed a tear, but it was not out of sadness. I believe there is a reason for everything. And your choosing of Lois and your wonderful letter of her life to me, I feel is already already building in me a stronger faith. Now, remember, Rhonda sort of had a religious upbringing as well, but, yeah, but clearly not in the sense that, you know, the horrors of the world are taking place in her household. Mm -hmm. So giving me up is a safety thing. Mm -hmm. um, but her faith is coming through... I think is a direct result of seeing my parents' faith acting out in such a compassionate way. Mm -hmm. So she goes on to say, I have an elderly couple in their 80s now who have helped me over the years and been wonderful friends. When I told them of Lois and sorry, when I told them of Lois and her family, they said, as they have always said, God is good, Rhonda. I am going to write you a letter soon, but I feel a little overwhelmed lately. Of course, changing jobs and friends staying and finding Lois has all been overwhelming. I need some quiet mental time. I am so proud of her achievements, and I also look forward to the day when I can hug you back and hold you and say thank you, God. Oh, here I go. <laughs> oh. Anyway, that's pretty powerful stuff. I'm so lucky to have that. Yeah. that information like beautiful. and that correspondence and that they both held on to it and that both of those bits of correspondence have found their way back to me yeah after their passing so you didn't you only saw these after your mum passed um i remember uh, look i remember my mum writing that letter to Rondo because yeah. at the time <laughs> i wanted to proofread it because yes, yeah. i was 23 and a control freak yeah. and didn't want mum to say the wrong things to my birth mother yeah so um so i but i hadn't seen this version yeah until my biological grandmother returned it to me only in recent years yeah. she's because my biological grandmother is still alive yeah um and then this card that mum got from Rhonda. mum always kept that in her correspondence i read it at the time that mum received it but i hadn't read it yeah. In a, you know, I hadn't read it in the interim, but as was wont and prone of typical of my mother, she made sure that card stayed where I would find it again. Yeah. You know, and so no, I hadn't seen it in many years until I saw it after her death last year, and I was like, wow, wow, I could put these letters together. I mean, it's such a for such an unusual thing. Being adopted is not. Normal, right? I think we all agree, but yeah. but it happens, and it, in my case, it worked out for my benefit. It saved me from a very dangerous situation, and um, to be able to have this correspondence as a record of the love of two mothers, mm. that means everything to me. Yeah. Like, yeah, so... I'm a product of two good mothers. I've always said it. And a, and a quiet, lovely Humphrey V. Bear dad. <laughs> well, thank you yeah. so much for sharing that. And um, that's probably a really beautiful note to, um, to end this yeah. discussion it's on, true. I think. So I'd like to thank you very much for speaking to me today. I know it isn't easy, especially when the, the losses are so fresh. Um, but your story is something that I know a lot of people relate to. Yeah. So thank you so much, true. Lois. And I'll say goodbye to Lo now for Lois um, and just say that next episode, Jane Sleeker and I will talk more about the various forms of grief and loss that we may encounter in life and how adoption ex the adoption experience adds an extra layer of complexity when tackling these experiences. So be sure to check our podcast notes for links to the relevant information um, over the next two podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com.
www.thecreativeoutlet.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you are calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.